Hello, and welcome to The County Conversation, a podcast featuring employees and subject matter experts from the Fairfax County government discussing programs, services, and items of interest to residents of Fairfax County. I'm your host, Jim Person, and on this edition of The Conversation, we'll talk with Helen McDonald, Youth Education and Outreach Specialist with Fairfax County's Domestic and Sexual Violence Services. February is Teen Dating Violence Awareness Month, and statistics show that young women between the ages of 16 and 24 experience the highest rates of dating violence. One in three teens in the United States will experience physical, sexual, verbal, or emotional violence from a partner, and rates of teen dating violence far exceed rates of any other youth violence. Now, those statistics are quite alarming, and we're going to talk about that issue with Helen. Thanks for being here with us to talk about the issue, teen dating violence, and welcome to the County Conversation. Thank you for having me. Absolutely a topic that I didn't realize was so so problematic. Mm. Is that the case that most people don't think it's really that big of an issue? I would say so. I think between parents, even teens themselves, we don't really have a lot of conversations around teen dating violence. When people think about dating and sexual violence, you know, the stereotype is usually people maybe in their 30s, you know, people who have gone past youth, right? And so teens often think, well, you know, our relationships, they might be shorter, you know, maybe after high school, you never see this person again. So they might think that it's not as important to talk about dating violence. And sometimes parents think, you know, you know, a lot of us maybe are guilty of saying like, ah, oh, it's a teen relationship. It's not mm-hmm. necessarily that mm-hmm. serious. However, more than half of men and women who've experienced dating or sexual violence report having experienced their first instances before the age of 25. So we mm-hmm. know that, you know, it's happening to people who are a lot younger than the stereotypes suggest. Right. Well, it's got to be it's got to be tough because you're not as mature. You don't really know how to date, I'm assuming. You're learning this as you're growing up and then to have this other aspect kind of thrown in, it it really must be kind of hard to to figure out and deal with. Right. There's no manual to how to date someone, right? And a lot of, you know, all of us usually figure it out by experience. And sometimes parents don't realize, like, this is actually a very, you know, important conversation I should have with my teens. I shouldn't just assume that, you know, they're going to do what I expect they're going to do in relationships. And, you know, we know that teens, your brains are still growing, right? And so whether it's impulse control, trauma that a teen maybe has experienced in their life, there's so many different reasons why um, it's, harder to navigate through relationships when you're younger, and that informs the violence that unfortunately may be perpetuated in mm-hmm. relationships. You mentioned parental conversations. Yeah. How do you, I mean, how do you start if you're a parent? How do you bring that up? Where do you, what do you talk about? How do you, how do you even bring up you know, dating violence mm-hmm. awareness. I think oftentimes the easiest way is to actually start from the positive, you know, talking about what healthy relationships look like. When we think about the media, there are so many depictions of relationships that really aren't healthy. And a lot of people, even adults, right, don't necessarily know that you deserve to be in a healthy relationship, what your relationship rights are. And I think starting at an early age, talking about what expectations, um, you know, is reasonable for a relationship, you know, making sure teens understand, like, you have the right to to feel happy and healthy and safe in your relationships really gets, you know, starts the teen off in a right place when they go into dating relationships. Mm-hmm. They know this is the standard of a relationship that I should accept and this and anything mm-hmm. outside of that I should not accept. Mm-hmm. What are signs of a healthy relationship or what are signs of an unhealthy relationship maybe that 
someone from the outside would recognize as mm-hmm. opposed to the to the team that's in that relationship. Yeah. Well, signs of a healthy relationship, I think, looking at what communication looks like, is there mutual respect in this relationship? Mm-hmm. Is Are the teens able to talk to each other through conflict and know that it's safe to talk about conflict without worrying, oh, my partner's going to blow up at me, or they're never going to forgive me if I share how I really feel? Um, does that teen still have autonomy in their life? They're able to still spend time with their friends and still um, spend time with their family members. It's not, um, they're not controlled in terms of where they can go and whom they can talk to. Okay. I think especially looking at social media, you know, are they allowed to be friends with the people that they want to be friends with or do they have a partner who says, you have to delete this person because I don't like, you know, seeing oh, them on your friend page. Yeah. And I think signs of an unhealthy relationship, of course, um, unexplained injuries is a huge sign. Oh. But I think, you know, if your teen is becoming more withdrawn, if they're being more isolated from their fa- friends and family networks. Unfortunately, a lot of abusers isolate um, the person that they're with so that they're not able to reach out for help and also so that they feel more dependent on that relationship. Mm -hmm. So if you notice your teen is really withdrawing from the networks that they're usually plugged into, that can be a big sign. Moodiness, protecting that partner, you know, apologizing. More moodiness than normal. (laughs) Yeah, more than normal. But, you know, protecting their partner. Like if someone says something that questions the behavior of their partner, like, hey, it seems a little weird that your partner gets so upset whenever you spend time with your family and they feel the need to really protect their partner. That can be a sign as well. Mm-hmm. You know, does, is their partner bragging about like how much control they have over that person? Oh, I have them wrapped around my finger. I can mm-hmm. make them do whatever. That can be a big warning sign right. too. Now, you mentioned social media a minute yeah. ago. Um, is that helping to exacerbate the problem or just shed more light on an already existing problem? I think it's both. I think we can look at social media and see a lot of the dynamics that happen in dating violence, the power and control dynamics. But I also think that it's a whole new world out there. And, you know, teens have the advantage over adults in the sense that they know a lot of social media and a lot of things that, you know, teens or adults are just catching up on. And I think, unfortunately, abusers are very clever about the way that they use social media to control their partners. We're seeing things as, you know, as subtle as, you know, like I said, telling someone who they can or can't be friends with or demanding access to passwords and passcodes to things as, you know, scary as someone using the find my phone feature to track their partner or on Snapchat, for example, there are geo filters that a lot of teens will enable so that they can say, oh, my friends are at the mall or my friends are down the street and abusers will use that to track their partners Uh as well. You, you, you've just gone over me right there. So <laughs> I'll, I'll make the joke. What is this snap book thing you're talking about? So I'm not that bad. Yeah. But, but yeah, parents need to really get a, get a handle on understanding and learning. And should we even go as far as, you know, demanding that we like be friends with our kids on social or have access to their passwords or accounts? I mean, what's What's going far enough without going too far from mm-hmm. a parental standpoint? I mean, I think it depends on every relationship between that parent and child. You know, I think every parent, you know, is the expert of their family mm-hmm. relationship. You know, you don't want to mimic the same, you know, 
patterns of power and control as an abuser. But I think you also want to enable your child to feel empowered to reach out to you, right? To say like, hey, if something happens online, if someone reaches out to you that you don't know, you know, tell me about this. You can talk to me about this, you know. And again, like I said, educating about what your rights are. You are totally allowed to keep your passwords to yourself. It doesn't make you suspicious. A lot of teens, when I talk to them about passwords, they'll say, well, if I don't give my partner my password, they're going to think I'm cheating on them. They might think I'm hiding something and you know abusers will use that to their advantage oh if you don't show me your password you don't really love me something must be wrong that you're doing but I think parents really reinforcing like no you're entitled to your privacy mm-hmm. there's nothing suspicious about wanting your own personal space and mm-hmm. having boundaries I think can be very empowering to teens giving mm-hmm. them the tools so that they can make those decisions right. and what about you know so-called public accounts versus you know what, what a finsta like a fake Instagram yeah that's, that's where you, I mean how I mean, how sh- concerned should we be about about that? I mean, mm-hmm. is that something if we if we find our kids have you know multiple accounts that maybe they're trying to hide something? Should is that a cause for concern or alarm? I think it's a cause to have a conversation with your teen. You know, what are they using their other accounts for? And even what are your privacy settings? If you know someone can see all this stuff on your mm-hmm. um, account, you know, do you want everyone to have that open access to your account? Maybe right. set up better privacy standards. You know, if they're if they have a fake account because you know they like to share an account with their friends, like you know, maybe that's not cause for concern. But if they're using it to send mean messages to other people or to mm-hmm. expose people, as they often say, then that's definitely a cause for a conversation. You want to redirect your child's behaviors. Okay. Yeah. Now, when we're talking about teen dating violence, and again, uh, month of February is Teen Dating Violence Awareness Month, and that's kind of the reason we're talking about this, to try to kind of highlight and Mm -hmm. shed some light on, on the issue or the problem. Teen dating violence, is that just physical violence that we're talking about? No, we're talking about a whole assortment of forms of violence. So physical, emotional, verbal, sexual, um, financial, and digital, of course. Wow. Let's break those down a few. Sure. Uh, f- financial. I-, I-, I hadn't even thought about that. Right. And I have these conversations with teens because a lot of teens don't necessarily think about, you know, what their financial journey is looking like, yeah. what their financial experience is looking like. But if that's derailed when you're pretty young, that can have long lasting consequences. So it might look like a partner who shows up consistently at your work to disturb and disrupt what you're able to do. So you lose your job. Right. Or it might look like a partner demanding, you know, money from you or say, let's say there are teens who live together, you know, the partner saying, oh, this is your allowance and denying them access to their basic needs. So that, you know, and I think a big thing that people don't necessarily think about is that some abusers will cause um, property damage, you know, like, so let's say, let's say an 18 year old, they live by themselves, perhaps, or they live on a college dorm, and their partner destroys, you know, the walls, punches holes in the walls, breaks things. So then the teen actually gets the consequences, right? right? And that's a way of potentially controlling like what access to housing that person has. Wow. All right. Um, Emotional. Mm -hmm. So this is a big one, right? And I think a lot of abuse starts um, emotionally, yeah, yeah. you know, sometimes teens will say, well, why would someone stay in a relationship if, you know, they're getting punched or they're getting hit? But a lot of abusers will start off with emotional violence, telling that person, you know, no one really loves you. You should be happy that you're in this relationship with me. The isolation piece, you know, cheating on them repeatedly to make them feel like unworthy of that relationship. And so it really degrades that person's sense of self-worth, their sense of self-esteem and makes it harder for them to leave because they might feel like, well, I'm not going 
to, you know, find anything better or if they've been isolated from their networks, they might feel like, well, if I leave this relationship, who do I have outside of this relationship right. anymore? This is the only place where I get love or right. where I can get my needs met. Right. Well, well, all of these, and we'll get into a couple uh, more of these, but all of these acts of violence, if you will, um, have long-lasting repercussions, and I think all of them have emotional uh, repercussions and damage, which pretty much are lifelong. I mean, it's hard to get over that part of it. Right, definitely. And I think especially with the emotional aspect, it's hard because there aren't bruises and injuries that people can see emotionally. I once worked with a young woman whose partner broke her back and, you know, she had to get surgery and she was okay after she got surgery and was able to get out of that relationship. But, you know, she told me the hardest part was actually healing from the emotional damage for her um, because, you know, the bruises healed, her bones healed, you know, she was able to walk again. But what it was harder for her to heal from was all the terrible things he told her about herself. Hmm. We're talking with Helen McDonald. She's a youth educational outreach specialist with Fairfax County's Domestic and Sexual Violence Services. We're talking specifically about teen dating violence. Again, February is Teen Dating Violence Awareness Month. Uh, But again, we're trying to draw attention and highlight it in February, but it's a a 365-day-a-year problem. So, you know, after you listen to this podcast and it comes March or April, just don't forget the topic. Don't forget the issue because it is important. And some of the stuff we're talking about, it's eye-opening for me as a parent of a young woman and a, you know, a high school son. So, you know, definitely the the target audience. Um, We talked about um, financial and emotional. Um, Of course, obviously, there's the the physical violence and the physical abuse. I mean, are there signs that maybe a relationship is going to start heading that way? I mean, it is, is it a gradual jump to physical violence or does it just kind of start with, you know, I mean, like a big physical and Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that sense? yeah, I understand. Um, it's hard to say, you know, a lot of abusive relationships, these forms of violence may happen simultaneously or they may change over time. So a relationship might start off emotionally abusive and then um, the person may escalate to fi- physical abuse. It might be simultaneously sexual and sexually and financially mm-hmm. abusive as well. So it's hard to say, you know, will someone who's being, you know, one type of abuse, you know, choose another right, fi- form of right. abuse. I think what's important to talk talk about with physical violence, though, is that um, predictors for lethality. So something I often talk about with young people is that if someone has like choked you or put their arms around your neck or tried to strangle you, that can be a high predictor for lethality. We take that very, very seriously. Um, People who attempt to strangle or choke their partners are six times more likely to attempt to murder their partners and seven times more likely to successfully do so. And so we don't take that very lightly if someone discloses that kind of physical violence. We talked about emotional earlier. The the verbal abuse is again that that emotional aspect Definitely. of it as well. Uh, again, you don't see the scars. You don't have, you know, broken bones or whatever, or black eye to to prove to somebody you're getting verbally abused. Right. Um, and and it's difficult for me to understand how mm-hmm. someone could stay in a relationship with that verbal abuse, mm-hmm. but it makes sense to the person in that relationship. Right. And 
people who are abusive often minimize what they're doing. So, you know, they might say something verbally abusive and then they say, I was just kidding. You know that I'm not being serious about this. Or, you know, we often talk about gaslighting. So when someone makes you doubt what your reality is, they say, you know, you say that really hurt what you did. And like, oh, I didn't say that to you. You're making that up. No one's going to believe you that I said that. Why would I say that to you? Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, people who are in abusive relationships, they have like the double edged sword of, you know, will other people believe me? But they're also with someone who might be minimizing what's going on in that relationship. And I think when we think about people who are watching relationships, bystanders, parents, sometimes, you know, you might have that feeling of like, oh, that seemed a little weird. Like that comment seemed a little out of pocket or maybe you shouldn't have talked to this person that way. But we might not actually address it like, hey, should you actually tell your partner that they're an idiot? Like, that's not cool. You Uh know, you think, well, I don't want to make it a big deal. It's not really my business. So I think when we think Mm -hmm. about verbal violence and emotional violence, the forms of violence that might be a little bit more subtle, it's important to support survivors because they might be fearing no one's going to believe me. And is this actually that serious? That might be why someone stays. Fear of what happens if they leave. Genuine love, you know, even though it's hard to imagine sometimes that someone could be abused and like still love that person, there still may be feelings of love in that relationship. Mm -hmm. And if the power and control is also very prominent in this relationship, it might feel like there's no escape. Well, and I think earlier on the conversation, you know, you talked about having that, you know, like a loving, supportive family and always talking, always keeping those open lines of communication. Uh, That's so important because, you know, the person in an abusive relationship should be able to feel like they could talk to a parent or caregiver or someone about it. But if you're the parent or caregiver, you're more aware. You can see these subtle changes perhaps. So when we see something like that that raises the hair on our neck, mm-hmm. I think you said maybe the first step is is talking to the person. Right. And making room for them to disclose. So, you know, like I said, for survivors, it might be scary to disclose, like if they think no one's really going to believe them. So if someone does disclose, like, hey, this thing happened, I think it's important to believe that person. You might be the first person that they've told this thing has happened, whether you're a parent, you're just a supportive adult in this teen's community, you're a friend, you want to be able to say, like, I believe you, you didn't deserve for that to happen. You want to make sure that if you're, for example, a teen who might hear that disclosure, we often tell them to, you know, have three trusted adults in your life. That might be a parent, that might be a social worker, that might be a religious leader in your community, whoever those three trusted adults are, bring that, you know, to those trusted adults, you know, say I have a friend who needs support around this. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that sometimes teens are reluctant to admit that it's abusive. You know, you might say, hey, this seems wrong. And they say, no, 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 this is okay. So something we talk about is like reframing it, like asking, well, what does a healthy relationship look like? For some teens, they can say, okay, well, it looks like this. It looks like communication. It looks like respect. Some might actually not know. And that's one, a teaching opportunity and also a way to reframe to say, well, is that what's happening in your relationship? If they can't say, yeah, like I feel like I can talk to my partner and be respected in what I say, that might be your opening to say, well, if that's not what you're experiencing, you don't deserve to be in a relationship that's hurting you. You deserve to be in a relationship that makes you feel fulfilled and Mm -hmm. feel like a whole person. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm going to ask a question that, um, you know, is ignorant question, I guess, or just an assumption question. Uh, My assumption is that uh, boys are the um, cause the violence more often than girls. uh, Girls, females are the recipients of violence. Well, statistically, you know, we have statistics that show that, you know, 
there are many, you know, instances where young women are being abused by men. Um, unfortunately, we don't have as much data around men experiencing violence, but we know that it happens. And I think the more conversations that we have with young men, you know, they'll. Even, I've been in classes with all men, and you know, they feel maybe nervous, like, oh, do you assume that I'm an abuser? And you know, I just approach it as we're talking about healthy relationships, we're talking about what dating violence is, and they'll say, well, if that's what dating violence is, I feel like I've experienced it. Yeah, and I think sure. it's hard because you know, a lot of men feel like if I say I'm being abused, people won't believe me. They'll like make jokes about it. I, I won't seem like a man anymore. And so, you know, yes, we have data that shows us, you know, statistically speaking that, you know, young men and men um, are, you know, abusive. But we also know that young men are being abused as wow. well. And not to mention, you know, uh, people of different gender identities, transgender yeah. teens, for example, true, as true. well. All right. I threw out a couple of statistics in the intro, and yeah. then you, you, you threw out some statistics just right off the top <laughs> of your head during the interview. Are there any other statistics or facts or something like that that you have that you want to uh, kind of have our listeners here and kind of drive home the, the importance of this yeah. topic. I definitely would like to highlight statistics for here in Fairfax County. So we're seeing data that matches the national average of teen dating violence. So more than 30% of teens, according to the 2017-2018 Fairfax County Youth Survey, survey identified experiencing dating aggression. So that's anything from physical violence, sexual violence, forced or pressured sex, stalking, um, that's what the county asked about, the county survey asked about. And so we have more than 30%, which is a 2% increase from the 2016-2017 survey. More than 30%. Right, which is pretty consistent with the one in three teens who experienced dating violence. And additionally, for teens specifically who identified having experienced forced or pressured sexual activity in the last year, more than um, almost 91% of those teens attempted suicide in the last year. So we also know that it's really impacting the mental health of young people in the county. So we can't talk about dating violence without also thinking about mental health and that it's a community public health issue as well. Wow. I'm speechless. I don't, I don't know what to say. Um, where can we get more information? Where can we learn about this? Are there resources mm-hmm. that we can help our teens uh, yeah. get through this? I think sites like loveisrespect.org and Break the Cycle are super helpful because they have resources for adults, supportive adults, as well as teen-geared um, information. And so, you know, for example, with Love is Respect, teens can, you know, go on the website and even, like, put in the chat box, go on the chat box if they have any questions for either peer. Um, there's an option to speak with peers an option to speak with adults who work with Love is Respect, um, you know, definitely they, you can refer them to our 24-hour hotline. So that's 703-360-7273 if they would like to speak to an advocate or, you know, be put in touch with any resources as well. Okay. And that telephone number again, one more time. 703-360-7273. Okay. And of course, you can also go to fairfaxcounty.gov and just do a search on domestic and sexual violence services. Mm-hmm. It'll bring bring up your office and more resources and stuff there. Definitely. Helen, thank you so much. Uh, eye-opening for me, uh, an important topic that we need to talk about. Keep highlighted, uh, special awareness during February. But again, uh, keep this at the forefront of your mind and uh, let's uh, let's get this problem solved. Helen McDonald with us, Youth Education Outreach Specialist with Domestic and Sexual Violence Services with Fairfax County. Thanks to her for being on the podcast, and thanks to you for listening. If you need to get more Fairfax County news and event information, go online to fairfaxcounty.gov news. 
You can also call 703-Fairfax. That's 703-324-7329, weekdays between 8 a.m. and 4.30 p.m. Thanks again for listening to the County Conversation, produced by the Fairfax County, Virginia Government.